Hello everyone, I'm Joan Kerr. Welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Tonight's topic is art and memory, and we have a terrific group of guests lined up, so please stay with us. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum, one of the Pentecost Museums on the Central Campus. Our production partners are UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecost Museums, KRUI 91.7, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available, along with all programs in the series, as a free podcast on iTunes. Memories live and resonate in both the conscious and unconscious spaces of our experience, but art allows for expression that moves beyond simple narrative. How does a poet draw upon memory? What does a masterful printmaker, painter, musician, or writer take from his or her own personal experience, and what is sheer imagination? Why is art such a powerful medium for the preservation and expression of a community's cultural memory? Our guests will answer these questions and more, coming at the topic with a wide range of experiences and perspectives. And we begin with someone I've known for many years and had the pleasure of working with many times, Iowa's first poet laureate and a longtime faculty member in the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop, Marvin Bell. Uh, thank you for being here, Marvin. Such a pleasure to see you again. Happy to be here, John. Yeah, well, thank you so much. So, um, as you said, we've done this before. I have great memories of the past times you were on these programs. And uh, when we began to discuss this program, you said that memory is something you've written about a lot, something you've thought about a lot as a poet. Oh, sure. Uh, the topic comes up a lot when people start talking about poetry and other arts. I, I, memory is a survival skill, that's for sure, but it's also the repository of emotion. And so I think poets and other artists, too, no doubt, go back. Um, they come up with what they think is a memory. It may really be. <laughs> and in any case, the emotions flood back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you told me when you came in tonight that one of the things you were doing to prepare for tonight's program was listening to music. Oh, well, I couldn't resist. I went and listened to uh, Clifford Brown, who was probably the greatest trumpeter player of his time, notwithstanding Miles. Uh, Clifford Brown, who died too young in an auto accident, uh, playing with strings behind him and playing memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've written related to memory. Oh, sure. I brought three little things along. Uh, one is a poem called How He Grew Up uh, that I wrote some time back. Uh, well, I had it written down when it was, but now I've forgotten. I grew up in a small town on the south shore of eastern Long Island, and I always went for walks. I still do. And uh, that's where this poem begins, and it begins with very simple details. But it wasn't called How He Grew Up. It was called How I Grew Up. And then I realized sometime after I'd written it that, oh, no, that's somebody I used to know well. That's not me. So this is how he grew up. He found the corner of town where the last street bent, and outdoor lights went down a block or so and no more. In the long list of states and their products, there was bauxite, rope, fire engines, shoes, even a prison, but not one was famous for purposeless streets and late walks. Often he missed the truth of this while gone for a walk with most lights out all over town, and no one told him when he returned the 10 things it was best to or the dozen it was better not to. He knew the window would be lit most of the night down at the camera shop, and the gentle librarian would keep the house of books open if he stopped by at closing. Up the street he went, leaving the lamps each night until he met the smell of the bay 
a fact to be borne home to sleep, certain of another day. The houses of friends were dark. He never told in those days. Something was missing from the lists of best and how to and whose town did what. He figured when no other was mentioned, it might be his town at the top of some list. But it was hard to read things on paper in the bony moonlight, so he never knew. People ask him all the time to have been where what happened happened that made the news. But usually the big things happened while he was out walking, the war, the war, etc. Wow, thanks. That's called How He Grew Up? Where That's called How He Grew Up. How He Grew Up. And you said when you led into that that it used to be how I grew up, but, but then it's somebody I used to know? What do you Absolutely, mean? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, years go by and you're not the person you were, right? Uh, and some of that is still part of you, but uh, with a little luck, good or bad, or perhaps both, you're someone else by then. Yeah. At least yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah, right. So memory is something that is lodged in the past, and as you know, I don't believe in time, I believe in entropy, but we have time as a metaphor, and perhaps it's a metaphor for memory. Yeah. <laughs> so read us this next one that you've prepared. I, I love this next poem. Please read that. Oh, this is a poem called Ending with a Line from Lear. Uh, my father passed away when I was 20, and uh, I started writing poetry after that, and naturally I wrote poems that he appeared in. Uh, he was an immigrant from the Ukraine, and I wrote poems which were meant to be elegiac, and a lot of them were somewhat fanciful, but every time I thought I'd written the last one, some, something would happen, I'd write another one. But this one was the last one, and I'll see, I think you'll see why. It's called Ending with a Line from Lear. The line it ends with is the line the old king in Shakespeare's play says over his, the body of his daughter Cordelia. So this is Ending with a Line from Lear. I will try to remember. It was light. It was also dark in the grave. I could feel how dark it was, how black it would be without my father when he was gone. But he was not gone, not yet. He was only a corpse, and I could still touch him that afternoon, earlier the same afternoon. This is the one thing that scares me, losing my father. I don't want him to go. I'm a young man. I will never be older. I'm wearing a tie and a watch. The sky, gray, hangs over everything. Today, the sky has no curve to it and no end. He is deep into his mission. He has business to attend to. He wears a tie but no watch. I will skip a lot of what happens next. Then the moment comes. Everything, everything has been said, and the wheels start to turn. They roll, the straps unwind, and the coffin begins to descend into the awful damp, into the black center of the earth. I am being left behind. The center of my body sinks down into the cold fire of the grave. But still my feet stand on top of the dirt. My father's grave, I will never again, never, 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 never. You can see why that might be the last one. Right. And it's spare. Uh, in this case, the memories have no, no, uh, not much imagination uh, overlaying them. You know, there are a few places where something happens you might call imaginative in the poem. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And 
And as one gets older, how much of memory is loss? Oh boy, you're asking a geezer. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I probably a lot. I like to say that my wife Dorothy and I have one memory between us, and it's mostly hers. <laughs> uh, but uh, things come back. It's amazing. Uh, you know, you forget things, and then they come back. Um, it's all you know. It's all electrochemical. It's not a sign of your character or anything. Um, I remember a lot. I, you know, one tends to remember, I think what they say about getting older is that your short-term memory goes, but your long-term memory yeah. gets longer. And that may be true. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so share the next one with us, please. Oh, yeah, I have one more I brought. This is called Gemwood. It's dedicated to Nathan and Jason, our sons. Uh, and here again, this wasn't the original title. When I first wrote it, I, ca I called it How We Think Back, which I guess has a direct reference to memory and time. The idea was, uh, how freely can I freely associate from any little thing? And you'll see what happened. It starts with a, uh, an object called gemwood. It moves to uh, a photocopy of a child's hand and it moves from there to a summer in Vermont. It moves from there to the death of a pet, and then onward. So this is what was called How We Think Back, but now it's called Gemwood. In the, excuse me. In the shops, they're showing Gemwood, the buffed-up flakes of dye-fed pines, bright concentrics or bull's eyes, wide-eyed on the rack of this newest joint effort of man and nature. But then those lifelines circling each target chip of gemwood look less like eyes, yours or mine, when we have watched a while. They are more like the whorls at the tips of our fingers, which no one can copy. Even on the photocopy Jason made of his upraised hands, palms down to the machine, they do not appear. His hands are five years old. Why did we want to copy them? And why does the gray yet clear print make me sad? That summer, the mad river followed us through Vermont, a lusher state than our own. A thunderous matinee of late snows, and then the peak at Camel's Hump was bleached. As a yellow pear is to the sky, that was our feeling. We had with us a rat from the lab, no, a pet we'd named, a pure friend who changed our minds. When it rained near the whole of the summer, in that cabin, Nathan made her a social creature. She was all our diversion and brave. That's why when she died in the heat of our car, one accidental day we didn't intend, it hurt her master first and most, being his first loss like that. And the rest of our family felt bad, even to tears, for a heart that small. We buried her by the road in the Adirondack Mountains and kept our way to Iowa. Now it seems to me the heart must enlarge to hold the losses we have ahead of us. I hold to a certain sadness the way others search for joy, though I like joy. Home, sunlight cleared the air, and all the greens of consequence. Still, when it ends, we won't remember that it ended. If parents must receive the sobbing, that is nothing when put next to the last crucial fact of who is doing the crying. I think now memory comes into my poems in a much more um, obscure way, if you will. Uh, my poems are still full of memories, but you don't know, 
you don't know that they are. You, you don't know if I have invented them or they're out of my life. There's a lot of biography in the poems, but you can't tell it's biography. Mm -hmm. But in, in these days, you might assume it was. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, I, I can't thank you enough for starting off our program in such, a, in such an impactful way. Thank you very much. Oh, you're uh, very welcome. <laughs> Marvin Bell, please say thank you. <laughs> thank So this is World Canvas. Uh, welcome to all of you who've just joined us here as the program got underway. I'm uh, bringing our next guests up to stage, uh, the stage now, Phil Lisansky, Terry Pitts, and Anita Young will be joining us. We're going to be talking about the legacy of internationally renowned printmaker and former head of the printmaking studio here at the University of Iowa, Mauricio Lisansky. Lisansky recently passed away, having left an indelible mark on the art and teaching of printmaking. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, just while they were getting settled here, we have Philip Lisansky, who is sitting just next to me here. He is the son of Mauricio and Amelia Lozanski. Very good to have you here. Thank you, Joan. You're welcome. Uh, Terry Pitts is at the far end, and he's the director of the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. Thanks for coming, Terry. My pleasure. <laughs> and Anita Young is uh, just in the middle there, and Anita is associate professor of printmaking here at the University of Iowa. So uh, what a pleasure to have a few minutes here to talk about this uh, very recently uh, deceased giant, really, of the art world, your dad. And um, uh, I'm sure that from the three people here, we'll be able to get a kind of a wide perspective on uh, not only the impact of Mauricio Lozanski as an individual and as a teacher, but also what he's done to, to art as we move forward and, and leave the last century and go into this next one. So I want to turn to you first, Phil. Obviously, each of us are a product of our families, the environments we grew up in, the political, social, cultural circumstances we had. And um, so your father was 97 when he passed away. He saw an awful lot of life. And I wonder if you can kind of give us a broad overview of the arc of that life. Sure. He um, lived a long-term life, as I like to say. He was unfortunately on the right side of opportunity for most of it. Uh, and so he, he, you know, did things the way he wanted to do. He was able to do that because of those circumstances. And, uh, you know, he did it all the way to the end. Um, and he lived his life, as did Mom, um, the way they wanted to. And, you know, they were fortunate to live long lives and, uh, and, and, and pass on without too much difficulty, as they say. Um, as you mentioned before, Dad was originally from Argentina. Um, and uh, emigrated to this country in 1943 uh, on a Guggenheim Fellowship uh, to New York City to study the print collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, at the same time, there were, it was during the war, uh, and many of the expatriate European artists were in New York at the time. Uh, one of the few was Picasso, who didn't leave uh, the continent, and he uh, these people all kind of, they were painters and sculptors for the most part. They weren't really graphic artists or printmakers. But what had happened was that uh, there was a, a printmaker named uh, William Hayter who was from England and had an atelier in England and then in France. And during the war, he brought his atelier over to the New School for Social Research, uh, hooked into that in New York City. And so all these expatriate painters and sculptors and uh, what have you, came and congregated at his studio because it was difficult to get, you know, material during the war and it was difficult to get spaces and things like that to work in their studio. So they all congregated and worked on prints. Um, 
And these were the giants of that era. I mean, you know, they're uh, from Calder to Miro to Chagall to Roberto Mata, and you know, you, like, the list goes on. And Dad was one of the young guys, and his contemporaries were Jackson Pollock and Robert Motherwell and uh, Mark Rothko and William de Kooning and people like that were more his contemporaries. They were all about the same age. Uh, and so that was a, a rather productive couple years there. Yeah. Then when the war was over, uh, in the um, intervening year, he actually got another Guggenheim and brought um, my um, oldest brother and oldest sister, who's here in the audience somewhere, up to the United States. And um, at the end of that second year, he pretty much didn't want to go back to Argentina. I mean, his family was up here, which is, his possessions were there, but his family was here, and that's all that was important. And he was offered three jobs. Uh, one was at the University of Chicago, one was at the University of New Mexico, and the University of Iowa. Grant Wood had recently passed away, and he was the head of the graphics department. He was a painter, obviously, but he was the head of the graphics department. And so it was that job had opened up. Essentially, Dad was offered that job, and um, without going into it too long a story, he, by the time he accepted it, the, the money line had been withdrawn because it was taking so long for them to fill the position and uh, he went back to his two mentors in New York, one of whom was the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the other was the director of the newly, relatively newly formed uh, John Simon Guggenheim Foundation and these two men were pretty responsible for dad coming up in the first place and they had kind of become his mentors as I said and he didn't know what to do so he went to these fellows and uh, said look, I want to stay and these are my three possibilities. What do I do? And, you know, he had already learned to speak some English at that point, obviously. And they said, well, Mauricio, you've seen the Scarface movie, so you know what Chicago is like. <laughs> um, New Mexico, there, ooh, there are going to be a lot of Spanish speakers there. Yeah. Uh, and you'll feel very comfortable and very at home, and as will your family. And they looked at, you know, the, the Iowa offer, and they said, mm, now that's America. And he said, well, then that's where I want to take my family. Uh, and that's, in essence, why I came. So he accepted it. The money line was pulled. He went back and told these fellows the money line had been pulled. And they're like, well, who's the president of the University of Iowa? And it was, at the time, it was uh, um, Hancher. Um, and uh, they, as uh, these two fellows in New York, uh, Taylor and... Um, Mo knew Hancher because they were all rogue scholars together. And uh, so Mo ended up calling him and asked what had happened. And he, Hancher, Virgil Hancher explained it to him. And Mo said, well, look, this is with what you're trying to do with the art schools, you know, in universities. That was a new era. And I was one of the first to have, a, you know, an art school within a university as opposed to just an art institute. Uh, this is somebody you shouldn't pass up. You know, this guy's going to do something, we believe. Uh, he said, well, you know, the money isn't there anymore. And Mo said, well, look, we'll give him another Guggenheim or a third Guggenheim for his first year's salary. <laughs> the condition was, Mo said, you have to give him two additional years. And after that, it's up to him to make it or not. Yeah. Well, within two and a half, three years, he was already tenured and a full professor and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The other funny part of the story is when he finally did get here, there was no housing left because the GIs were coming back. There was only one house, essentially, it may have been a Quonset hut, uh, left, and they gave that to the brand-new football coach. <laughs> so there was no, no housing, and, you know, they went to talk to Hancher about it, and Hancher said, look, 
we've got this apartment on the top floor of, is it 103 Church? Is that right? oh, whatever the address is? Yeah. Uh, and they can just live there until we get them housing. And so essentially they lived there for almost a year, I believe, close, <laughs> with my sister and oldest brother and mom and dad. And that's when dad and Hancher became really good friends. You know, yeah. it was that year of conversation and everything else. Um, you know, within a few years, the Iowa Print Group was started, and, you know, they were starting as a group. Dad is kind of head of this group, but they were starting to kind of push the envelope with uh, what was acceptable for prints in terms of what was being exhibited and what was... There were limitations with prints, as mm-hmm. Anita uh, could refer to if she wanted to. There's, mm-hmm. You know, and, and they kind of broke that envelope. And yeah. So that's when his arc at Iowa just started kind of taking off and went until he retired. In 1965, um, 65 or 6, when the university decided to do honored chairs on campus, um, it it was part of a package to get Dad to stay. He was offered jobs all over the country, and only once did he seriously consider it, and they came up with a package to essentially have him stay. And one of the, the, the parts of that was that they said, you know, the dean, I think it was Dean Stewart, uh, pulled out a list from his desk and showed Dad this list, and it had Dad and Paul Engel and Jim Van Allen on it, and said, you know, you see the list, you're on this list, you're the first three chairs we're going to have on campus when we do chairs, and we've decided that, you know, we'll start with you. And uh, Hatcher had passed away a couple years earlier, mm-hmm. and um, they said, you know, and you get to choose the name of your chair. And he immediately said, I would like it to, to be the Virgil M. Hatcher. A chair, and they gave they uh, gave him that name for the chair, and said you will be the only person who ever has that chair mm-hmm. with that title. And he kept it until you know a month ago, mm-hmm. and uh, finished out his career here in the mid '80s. 1985 was a 40-year career, and uh, mm-hmm. as he said, it was time to step aside and pass it on to people like Anita. And, yeah. and yeah. so he stepped away yeah. from. The academic end, but right. then he immersed himself 100% into just working in the studio yeah, and right. did that for the last 25, 6, 7 years. Fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, uh, Anita, we've had a couple of balls thrown in your direction to, <laughs> to tell us a little bit about what um, Maurice Ulysanski's work with print actually did to expand the, mm-hmm. the genre. Um, why don't but, you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I, I really attribute um, Maurice Ulysanski with and with, through his forming of the Iowa Print Group, um, to really add the element of, of intense research coupled with aesthetics to um, to that dialogue, and also to have it be a dialogue that was very collaborative and, and information was very shared and very fluid. And the contributions that, that Mauricio made was definitely to expand um, the discipline without losing its essence. You know, sort of keeping the heart, but yet expanding it, and and he definitely challenged um, mythologies and, and notions of prints as small objects. They were very large. You know, he did very large, very complicated multi-print objects, um, and I think that conceptually, what I really appreciate about his work is is the passion in the work. Be it um, the Nazi drawings that he's so well known for which are um, just almost painful to, to see. You know, you become very engrossed in them. But he could take that same passion, and, and just as he could depict horror in those pieces, he could depict 
um, love and empathy um, when, when doing images of his family. So that I find really compelling in terms of his work and that he really felt that they were all worthy subjects if done mm-hmm. you know, correctly and done with that passion. But um, I think that his, his contribution was definitely as um, an artist who could also make prints. And the contribution he made could not be made by artists who collaborated and had printers make their prints. It really had to be done by a person that could be both of those roles. And so he really opened that door, I think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, when I was reading, you know, so many wonderful articles have been written about your dad's work in these uh, recent weeks, and I think the one in the New York Times said something fairly lengthy and, of course, full of praise regarding the Nazi, the Nazi drawings, and I guess I hadn't even thought about the fact that they're not prints. The thing he is no, perhaps yeah. um, in some ways best known for was it was not the tool he used to make these Nazi drawings. I guess they're uh, referred to as plain paper and, and pencil. But, he was very passionate about drawing. Um, and even in the print program, he linked it for a long time. It was prints and drawings. They were very linked, especially at the graduate level. And he was um, very, uh, pa- you know, he was very instructive in terms of that you, you really need to work out those problems before you come to the plate. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think he really did also was, um, you know, with the drawings and things, that there was a lot of collage elements. and and the way that he kind of constructed. And he, he was as fluid with his paper, you know, and that fluidity then he brought to the plates, to the metal. Mm-hmm. And so he really kind of used those dialogues and interwove them. Mm-hmm. Well, Terry, uh, with Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, I know yours is one of the, the large collections of uh, work by Lazansky. Uh, what are some of your, you know, favorite pieces that represent his work <laughs> there? Are there any in particular that you would want to talk about? Well, it's very hard to pick out favorites, and I, I have the pleasure of being able to walk out my office down the hall any day of the week and see several dozen of Mauricio's prints. And what I'm always struck by, and what I went through the galleries twice today, thinking specifically about this idea of memory, uh, and what's what I was struck by today is the fact, as Anita pointed out, that for Mauricio, there were good memories. There were things that you want to remember, like your family, and there were things that you needed to remember that you did not want to remember. The poverty that he left in Argentina, the war, the Holocaust, and, and other dark sides of life. And so it's really interesting to me that he insisted that both of those play an equal role. That you couldn't have the bright side and the family side without the dark side. Um, and I think the other aspect of Mauricio's work that's so striking, um, and it always takes me back to Marcel Proust, who um, uses details and small insignificant um, objects, smells, or other traces to give us a lifetime worth of memories. Um, Mauricio's work is often very um, sparse. Uh, sometimes the portraits are very roughly drawn out except for the face or the hand or the details of the collar or a bow in the hair or something that's, that's that kind of trigger 
that sets you off. You don't have to have the full reproduction of every piece of every you know, piece of fabric, everything that the person's wearing. You don't need every wrinkle and hair in place. You just need those two or three things that are so critical to him, and that sets him off. And I think the other part of Mauricio's work that can't be overlooked is the the very curious fact that he made so many self-portraits which in a way is a very sort of double-sided um, way of addressing memory. You can address it, he's, he's trying to remember how he looked like at yeah. a certain time, but he's also addressing his, his legacy and saying, this is how I would like to be seen. And, mm -hmm. and when you look at those portraits from, self-portraits from that perspective, you get this person who's willing to portray himself as a kind of gawky, person with big ears and whose eyes are too close together and wore big glasses, <laughs> but whose stare is, comes through in every single self-portrait. So he's saying to the world forever, this is how I want you to remember me, is my mm -hmm. look, mm -hmm. my glance. Yeah. I, I was so interested in this comment you made about not needing to see every detail of the fold of a skirt or whatever in order to, to see what you need to see. Because when I look at some of those, the, the portrait of the woman in the red dress with the black um, hat, um, you know, her stance, everything about that picture to me seems like it should be Velázquez or Goya or something. And yet it's clearly from a different era. It's, it's done... It's, the representation's quite different, but it feels to me as though there's real continuity there through time. Yeah. Uh, what more can we say about your, your father's legacy here uh, in these last couple of minutes? You know, uh, his legacy is what it is. I mean, it's, you know, his work's in Cedar Rapids, it's in Iowa City, it's all over the world, and that's really his legacy, is, mm -hmm. you know, his mark. And, yeah. uh, and as Terry and Anita said, the mark comes in many different forms and shapes yeah. and sizes, but that's his legacy, it's his art. So at the end, did he feel like an Iowan? Oh, yeah. Yeah? yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. In the summer, he felt like he was from Maine, but <laughs> during the year, it was Iowa. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, thanks so much. I'm glad we had a chance to talk a little bit. It's a, it's a fine opportunity for us to uh, get together and remember some of his work and him. So thank you, Phil Lazansky and Anita Young and Terry Pitts. Thanks so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to invite my next uh, guests up now. We're going to be talking with Felix de la Concha and Ana Marino. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the painting that Felix de la Concha does and uh, some of the work that both of them do in terms of film and documentary and also some writing projects that Ana in particular is uh, associated with. So Felix de la Concha is a painter and filmmaker just next to me here and uh, his collaborator and wife is Ana Marino and uh, she's uh, the director of the Spanish language MFA program at Creative writing here at the University of Iowa, also a professor of Spanish. And uh, Felix is a winner of the Prix de Rome. His paintings hang in museums and galleries all over the world. Uh, you can see much of it online, really fascinating stuff. I'm very happy to have a chance to talk to both uh, Anna and Felix here. And I think we'll start first with painting. And um, you know, you've heard us talk about memory. You know this program is about memory. And um, I've seen paintings of yours that, that sort of represent two different um, areas of focus. You do gorgeous landscapes, interesting um, uh, perspectives sometimes, the same image from different angles, uh, then also just amazing portraits. Um, I, I just want to ask you first, uh, what draws you to either of those uh, subjects? 
<laughs> That's a very complicated question. Well, thank you, John, yeah. for inviting me here and us. I just was, uh, I don't know why, thinking in something that Terry Pitts just said about uh, Lasansky, that, uh, you know, I'm so sorry, also, and my um, condolences to the family. Um, about the self-portrait, that he was doing these self-portraits as the way he wanted to be remembered. And I was shocked by that because, um, I mean, I do many self-portraits of myself, and many people think it's for something about Bain, mm -hmm. that uh, of the artist, and when you think on Durero's uh, self-portrait, like he's such a prominent, but when you see, for instance, Rembrandt's, um, I don't know if it's just this gold or your thought, or, or I mean, every artist probably is different, but talking from myself, when I do these self-portraits is because I want to be remembered that way. Because, I mean, in the first place, it's not that I have in this thing about the image that I'm going to project to the other people. It's something that you live with it as you see yourself in the mirror all the time, and there is a process of is your first model that you can have, and then you experiment, and it's something about intimacy. Um, well, but talking about the memory that um, and the portraits and your question, <laughs> um, I may start uh, talking about relating with the memory. Uh, in fact, normally I, I paint outside, I paint um, uh, things that are in my surroundings. And so since I came three years ago to Iowa, I, I found it very inspiring. I was before living for five years in New Hampshire, and so it was a completely different landscape. So everywhere I go, just uh, yes, the place give me new ideas. Okay. It's not that I go with a preconceived idea. And so I, that's because I have to be there. I never uh, kind of work from photographs because also the light, the experience to be there, the movement, time is very important for me. Um, and so going to the portraits then um, that I do is also related in the way that uh, is something live, is constrained uh, in the way normally I do uh, some several projects that I have done. Um, I used to do a format, I mean, every project is different, of course, but in which I concentrate just in a single session, it's called Alla Prima, uh, so it's all fresh, and in about a couple of hours, so it's just like a whole session in a day, uh, we can take breaks depending on the model, especially if it's an old person, like I have done with uh, Holocaust survivors, you can imagine, so, which is funny, I mean, I can say normally elder people uh, are better <laughs> sitters than some young people. I can be surprised by that because, yeah. I mean, and they kind of spend like three hours and they are happy going on like in a row. <laughs> but, well, I constrain that time. Um, and also I have an interview. Uh, so um, at the same time, and I'm recording all this in a video, so it becomes something multimedia. Uh, and so this is then later all this footage exhibited in different ways, uh, full length, excerpts of it, uh, it depends. Uh, so there are many ways to, uh, but there is a very intense testimony because um, um, you are an interviewer, excellent, of course, and and uh, and you know how is well TV and radio, which uh, the timing is 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 very interesting, very important, right? Mm -hmm. It's essential. So 
I was talking about timing in the landscape. Here is also a timing that I need to do the portrait. And that becomes a different rhythm. I mean, silence, for instance, are different, right? Because uh, their testimonies, they know I have this excuse of asking them these two hours. Uh, and we are by ourselves because I, I put the camera, it's always steady, I just click at the beginning and, 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 and you know, stop it when it ends. And usually the frame is just uh, half of the screen, you can see the sitter and the other half the, um, uh, the canvas itself, mm -hmm. since it's a blank canvas. And so the viewer also later is engaged in the way that can see the process of mm -hmm. the evolution of the, of the, of the yeah. canvas, meanwhile, listen to the testimony. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, well, it's very, um, I, mean, ask, uh, I mean, for me, it's very demanding the concentration because it's, 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 I have to be at these two activities. But somehow, I don't know how the brains work, but I mean, language and image goes like in different parts or wherever, but I, I found that complement each other because this thing started actually like an like experiment into painting to see which kind of portrait I could accomplish mm -hmm. and was something with, um, I asked um, people, that was one of my first projects from different fields of the art world and talking about painting because I was painting. Uh, so I wanted to know what was their approach if, I don't know, from a writer, an architect, a filmmaker, all this. But since there, um, since that's, that experiment, I realized the testimony is very, very special. Mm -hmm. And that's because I did other projects, concentrating a lot also on testimonies like with Holocaust mm -hmm. survivors or different communities mm -hmm. telling me their experiences, life experiences. And uh, well, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. more or less, this is. Uh, the, the two that I know about, you've talked a little bit here about the, the Holocaust survivors and the experience working with them. And you also mentioned having elderly people sit for you sometimes in the project you did with the elderly of Bilbao mm -hmm. uh, and made a long film there out of There was the longest story of Bilbao ever painted. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, what is it that, you know, I could imagine, uh, suppose someone has agreed to sit with you, uh, sit for you for three hours, and uh, you just ask them to be quiet and please, you know, just don't move because I want to take your, I want to paint you now, so please don't move, don't change your expression. Uh, as a kid, I always imagined that this was what sitting for a portrait was like. You just are frozen. But, uh, but that is clearly the opposite of what you do. You ask these people to become engaged in their, their life and their memories of their lives. And what does that do in terms of the, what does, how does that change what ends up on the page, do you think, or on the, on the canvas? Right, right. That's, um, I mean, you are right. And normally when I was starting doing portraits, I, I, I asked them, well, to be more or less steady, to focus the, I don't know, the, the, the look in a point, and mm -hmm. then so they will be steady in that position. Um, and this is different. But um, of course, it's, 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 well, the results obviously is different uh, because they are moving all the time. Uh, and, 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 and especially if they are doing, uh, giving you a compelling story, mm -hmm. you know, telling, uh, these stories of, I don't know, talking about their experience in Auschwitz, you cannot say, okay, you know, you have been moving <laughs> too much to the <laughs> side or whatever, please. Uh, but I think was, um, um, I wouldn't say even a compromise because what happens is becomes another thing, it's another object. It's like, um, you know, it's not, it's not about the precision of formally being, having a perfect portrait, but it's about this expression. So even, so it has to be, I always say that it's, it's not 
economic portent has to be uh, have to be seen in this context. That is in this particular situation in which, you know, the people, the expression, especially you know, the mouth is always moving. So obviously the results are different. I, I try to accomplish as much as I can and accurate it. But 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 uh, I mean, I, I I think if I lose in any way um, a formal perfection, let's say, it's um, I think is. I mean, not. I mean, it's part of it. It's part of its beauty, you know. Mm -hmm. That is this this uh, thing about that is this expression and this moment, mm -hmm. and to capture this this this, this mm -hmm. moment, right? Yeah. So maybe in a way that that um, movement that you're catching is kind of like the light catching the light for a moment when you're painting a landscape. I mean, something happens there that may not right. be right. And also want to do that. like a comparison. Also in a way, there is this reflection of the memory. Let's say I'm, you know, they're telling me this story. Uh, there is a sentence I, I, I recently listened in a, in a symposium I was invited in Minnesota about human rights. Um, uh, Patrick Magnavara was this one of the academics talking, and he said, history is not the past. It's a metaphor of the past. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very poignant to this project because, of course, there is a reality, but um, we have always... I mean, we capture this reality and this history as a reflection or how it's portrayed um, in a way, and I use, uh, you know, connoted, I mean, this word of portraying in a way that I'm doing a portrait too, but I mean, these people are telling me their story, which is a direct uh, life of history and a very important moment in history, but it's always through their lenses in a way. And so I try to portray and capture a reality that you know that is going to be impossible to capture in a way. I mean, when, when the people say, you paint what you see, and I say, well, that's impossible. You never paint what you see because I mean, what you are seeing, and I, what I paint is the reality that I have seen is already gone. So it's, that's something, uh, you know, impossible to capture. But you try to capture this metaphor, uh, which is a way to understand. In a way, it's not that I'm saying, you know, you can have a denial, you know, you can have a denial and say, okay, then the reality doesn't exist, so we can invent whatever. But no, of mm -hmm. course. And also, you know, actually, the deniers scare me in the way that something so strong as the Holocaust that happened so recently, uh, there are already some people questioning about that. And, and that's very relevant. The thing is that, uh, uh, so the, the urgency for me to do this project with the Holocaust in particular is because, um, I mean, in a few years, they would be all gone. I mean, and we are the last generation to have this privilege to have this direct contact with them and have these, these, this approach to them. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, thank you, uh, Felix. Uh, Anna, let me turn to you a little bit. You've worked on the film projects with uh, your husband. Well, I was the producer of yes. La Historia Más Larga, de Bilbao yeah. Jamás Pintada, yes. Yeah. It yeah. was a very fascinating experience because uh, Felix gets these amazing ideas and you have to follow, you know, and you have to help <laughs> and, and you have to get involved. And with La Historia de Bilbao, we really did a really great research locating the eldest people of the city of Bilbao and getting involved with them and, and, and doing that project was a very fascinating experience for me, helping mm -hmm. him. But he is very 
capable of doing everything. It's amazing <laughs> because even all the filming part, he was he learned on his own. You know, mm-hmm. he self-taught mm-hmm. how to do everything. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. I you know take all this training to how to manage a simple computer. I'm still you know having to sign <laughs> for new training for a new system. And, and the other hand, Felix has this talent to suddenly ambition an idea, you know, relate with people, connect with communities, and jump into that, and it's, and it's amazing. Well, speaking about connecting with communities, and you teach here on campus, you teach many different kinds of students, I'm sure, but you also work with various communities outside of Iowa City, um, some of the people in West Liberty who are newer residents in Iowa, for example. Um, tell us a little bit about how how memory plays into the to the work you see coming back to you as a teacher. Yeah, I think it's in the creative side, I think one of the stimulating things that you do and you develop is the way we articulate memory and how we indicate our identity, ourselves through memory. And when you work with different communities, different groups where they have an experience, a new experience, a diasporic experience, and they are experimenting Iowa and living in Iowa, it's very interesting how you can trick different sensations and play with their feelings about past, present past, and all these um, different, you know, perspectives. And it's true that I, I use a lot of memory on, on the creative writing experience. Uh, I believe in diaries. I am a true believer in diaries. All my life I've been developing workshops and classes. I've been using the diary because I, I've been a, a very strong fan of the diary experience. That means... A diary is on my workshops when I do long-term workshops or classes where they can experience the short memory of everyday life and the reflection on everyday life and to keep that. And that, I mean, is a very interesting element. And it's interesting because Felix used the concept of diary also in his painting, and I realized that that also connection. But with the students... It's very fascinating, the texture of communicating with their family and how their family will articulate their, you know, their perspective. And this non-fiction dimension is very inspiring. And at the same time, as we've been seeing, is in, in the poetry dimension is also a, a fundamental mm-hmm. element. And, and you are also a poet in your own writing. Um, you know, you grew up in Spain and you've mm-hmm. lived in many places. Um, how much do you think memory is part of what you do as a creative artist? I think I, my strongest memory is the taste of things. I have a strong nostalgia for flavors. I would remember chocolate, olives, all, all very, very important, in, in some ways connecting with the, the Proust idea of, of this beating, tasting something and, and the, the, that sensation. That means I think I miss things, but... What I love of, of, of being in Iowa is that Iowa brings a new dimension of memories. Even the Iowa has a beautiful history itself. In the, my first year here, I work a lot on the on a committee with the Pentacrest uh, Museum, and um, and I met uh, wonderful people at the Iowa Historical Society. And suddenly, you insert in your own experience and the 
your own experience of missing place, the memory of the new place, like um, Iowa was the center of taxidermia, things like that, that suddenly <laughs> became your own vindicated memory of making this place unique, or the story of the building that they were one year moving from one place to another, that was the the registration, now is the, the registration place. Like There is very beautiful, there's a very literary dimension in Iowa who creates new memories of the new creative memories of the future and I love to go to the museum the natural science museum full of all these animals who are the new memory of the creative future and are the past I love that Mm -hmm. and I think Iowa has that beauty that other states doesn't have and I'm telling you I've been in we've been in many and here in Iowa I can see that energy that Mm -hmm. is very creative and and very peculiar So have you uh, been working on any portraits of people here in this area? Have you got any similar projects going, or do you think that'll happen? I think it will happen. I'm, um, I, mean, I don't want to say too much about the project I'm, I'm envisioning and in the first stage, um, but um, I think uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a particular project I want to do with, with portraits here in Iowa. Yeah. Um, already probably next year because we will be uh, well in Switzerland for the rest of the year practically for another project but um, well hopefully yeah. we will yeah. see it yeah. in the future well and I want to tell everybody here if, if you have a chance um, go to um, just just put um, Felix de la Concha's name in a search engine and you'll find wonderful YouTube videos where in fast focus your fast form you can see um, paintings being created and uh, you can find lots of uh, his images online. Really such fun to see, and uh, very lucky to have you here in our area, both of you. Anna, Felix, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Strangely enough, we have been talking about Proust already, and I had thought that that would start when we brought you up here, Hugh, but Hugh Ferrer is coming up to join me now. He's a writer, teacher, and assistant director of the International Writing Program. He'll be talking about teaching writing and looking for the sources of inspiration, how much is imagination, how much is memory. Um, We also do want to talk a little bit about Music IC, or Music Iowa City, which is going to happen this summer, and that's where this Proust connection comes in. So welcome, Hugh. Uh, thanks for having me. It's yeah. nice to be around so many friends and colleagues. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, great. Thank you for doing this. And and so we have had a little exchange prior to this program. And um, uh, as a writer yourself, and you teach writers and aspiring writers, memory comes into play here, huh? Yeah, what Anna said is, is right. I, I think a lot of student writers, uh, when you're trying to encourage them to write, uh, memory is a very useful prompt. Uh, and what I found was... Uh, that they're, I think people's memories are very, very vivid to themselves. Uh, but when they go to try and convey them through art, uh, it doesn't come across as anywhere near as vivid or it doesn't contain what Marvin was pointing out, doesn't, doesn't somehow become the right vehicle for uh, the emotional content that the memory has for the, for the person doing the remembering. So how do you get it across? And uh, yeah, as we were talking about this, I realized that... Uh, the turning point for me was actually in this room in 2001 when uh, during the Truman Capote prize ceremony that year they gave uh, the award to Elaine Scarry uh, for her book Dreaming by the Book, which is very much about how the literary imagination works and how certain kinds of 
certain kinds of language, certain details are more vivid and more easily taken up uh, by a reader, and they're better instructions for a reader to make an image. And I, I realized that you know, the most successful writers, especially writers who want to convey their memories, they tend to focus on what the imagination is good at, because imagination and memory are different. You know, they're just different faculties. Uh, I know faculties is this very 19th century word that, uh, you know, Damasio would, would not have me using. But, uh, but basically, we don't remember what the writer remembers. We only remember what the, uh, what the writer gives us in language. Uh, and so somebody like Proust, uh, you know, he, he does focus on things whether or not they're real memories, whether he's making some of them up, whether he's embellishing them, adorning them, whatever. I mean, part of what he's doing, though, is he's always, he tends to really focus on elements that are, are easy for the imagination. And to the extent that they're easy for the imagination to use, it's easier for that, uh, as in the Marvin Bell poem, you know, for the I to become the he or for the he to become the I so that somebody else's memories somehow sneak and become your own, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this connection with food is, is so interesting, yeah. what Anna had said and what you mentioned here and with mm. Proust and the little mm. Madeleine and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, I don't think there's probably a person in the room who doesn't have memory. Of, foods bring back family memories, memories mm. going back to whenever travels we've been on and so on. Um, uh, is, is there any caution about going to memory first? Are there things you sort of think you maybe need to warn people about in terms of drawing upon their own memories? Well, as uh, Terry was pointing out about uh, Lazansky, uh, you know, and I mean, there is a, I, I'm, no, I'm no painting scholar, but I mean, reduction of what goes on the canvas, you know, the, uh, there's a period in which less and less went on the canvas, and that was partly because it turns out that you don't need every single detail to evoke something, mm -hmm. you know, and that uh, uh, the right lines, the right patches of color, to, you know, minimum, you you can do a lot more with less is more I guess is is the conventional thing. But if you if you think about Marvin's poems at the beginning of the show, you know um, he said of the second poem ending with a line by Lear that well you see this one has this one has some imaginings in it, and part of what he meant by that was you know there was the the wheels of the caisson, uh, there was the straps on the, uh, 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 around the uh, casket there. And then there was a bit of work done with the space of the grave. And then in the next poem, uh, though he didn't say so, there was far more imaginings at the beginning where the, uh, uh, was it the gem, the gem wood mm -hmm. uh, was described in great detail as a bullseye, as the high buffed piece of eye. And he's, he went into, uh, quite a bit about that. Uh, and then when the animal, though when the pet gets introduced, there's, there's less imagining as the thing goes on. And as he, he's talking more about feeling and loss, he's doing less with having us actually try and picture something and, and more about trying to have us feel something. So even as you're reading the poem, there's less for you to hang on to so that in fact you kind of lose something as the poem goes on. So on some level, formally, you've also experienced loss. Um, so how, 
how it doesn't take a lot of, your memory comes back and obviously you can tell about your aunt's history and you know where the carpet came from and you know uh, when the building went up that blocked the view in that window and you know why your mother cuts the corner off the rump roast and all mm -hmm. this and you don't, you know, but um, maybe as Marvin said, you know, what the feeling you're trying to evoke may not require more than a little uh, precise things. And, and, and to what extent are you composing a set of imagined f imaginings and feelings uh, for, the, for, the, for the reader, mm -hmm. you know? And orchestrating, you know, you're trying to orchestrate a certain uh, set of things that happens in the mind. You're trying to cast a certain kind of spell or, you know, yeah. induce a certain kind of a, a sequence of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you're seeing something, then you're not seeing something, you're listening to voices, and then, uh, and then maybe you're seeing something again, and then maybe you're just being told about feelings, and then, you know, those are all parts of moving a reader along. Um, so, and it doesn't require, you can do a little of this and a little of that and a little of that mm -hmm. and move somebody along quite well. Well, and as a, as a writer, um, how do you feel if you encounter somebody who remembers who remembers a lot about a story you've written, but almost no detail. They remember how they felt when they read it or the reaction they had to it, but uh, you know, remembering a sequence of events and so on may not, may, may not, that may not be with them, but they might say, oh, I loved that story. What did you love about it? Well, I don't know, but I just loved it. Is that frustrating to a writer I or think is we, that good? Well, I think, you know, it's, there's, there's several possible reactions to that. One is that, uh, you know, I think for a long time I didn't use my imagination when I was reading. Uh, part of the thing about listening to Elaine Scarry present her ideas and then going and reading her book and reflecting upon it for a long time was that, uh, you know, literature uh, in the 20th century has been in the shadow of visual culture. Mm -hmm. And before photography and film, you know, the great novels were the, some of the great movies of the day, you know, and... Uh, it was the, the, the writers and poets had a great facility with making images for the reader. The reader would use it to generate a whole set of scenarios and would picture, I think, a lot more with their reading. One of the effects of modernism, uh, not, not, not inescapable, was to focus a lot more on language. And so you, you listen, maybe you listen or you just focus on the language uh, or the voice, but you don't necessarily go to the trouble of making, making the images in your head. I think I have a... I end up having a very good memory for a lot of what I read now, in part because I went to the trouble to visualize it. And I, I have friends who, who don't and who you know, are always surprised when I call out a detail. It's like, well, you don't remember the way the sun <laughs> hit the car in that scene? And they're like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, one of the things we wanted to, to mention this evening was that this uh, Music Iowa City event is going to happen again this summer. It's the second yeah. year for this, and it's a, it's a series of concerts, I think three nights this year. And I think there's, a, there's like five. I think it starts June 10th mm -hmm. with, a, with an event, I think, at the Natural History Museum maybe yeah. on, on the Sunday afternoon with a family event. And then there's going to be a couple of events uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 12th and 13th, uh, one in the evening, one in the morning, about uh, Trisha Park, uh, uh, the violinist Trisha Park from Notre Dame, who's going to be playing with the chamber ensemble that's going to be uh, the, the musical force behind uh, the festival. 
and I, we're going to have a chat with perform, uh, a conversation with performance where uh, we're going to talk or try and talk about the m music and Proust. Proust, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, the French will analyze Proust for another 400 years, mm -hmm. uh, and we may do the same, but there's the way music is, appears in remembrance of things past, how it serves as a kind of Madeleine or, or an olive or a piece of chocolate, which is to say that it leads right into a certain kind of intuition about the past and a certain kind of sense of the self. Uh, there's that part of music in Proust, and then there's also larger structural Wagnerian dimensions to the way uh, Proust was trying to compose. And one of the things we'll be dealing with is he invented a piece of music called Van Toy's Sonata, and this sonata appears throughout, especially in Swan's way. And what's weird is he calls out all these other pieces of art and music throughout the book, but Van Toy's Sonata is made up, and so one of the questions is why, especially when everybody knows it's the violin concerto by Saint-Saëns, you know, <laughs> and he's even written in a, to a friend that this is what it is, so why didn't you call it that? Yeah. Anyway, so there'll be, the musicians will be playing some of the excerpts of that, and we'll be discussing how uh, music and Proust work together. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think one of the things we discussed in our, our email exchange was um, that the theme is something like the, the, the language of music and the music of language. Yes, last year they, uh, they concentrated on music that was um, absolutely declared to have been inspired by certain pieces of literature, and, and this year the... The, they flipped it around, and so it was to look at literature that's, I mean, this is just sort of a guiding principle. I mean, there's three nights of music, including a Schubertiad. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be on the Saturday or the mm -hmm. Thursday. Um, to, so to look at literature that uh, took music uh, for structure, and, and I don't know whether the plan is mm -hmm. to go back and forth each year, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it's, a nice, it's a nice week of chamber music. Yeah. And so, in your own personal writing, um, just getting back to this idea of memory, how much of how much how much of your you're a young man still? Um, Flesh your heart. <laughs> it, you know, um, well, when Marvin was up here, he was saying, "Oh, you know, I can't tell. I can't remember what's real and what's I'm not with real. Marvin. I have a lot of memories." I'm, I'm with him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really. I, I have a fraternal twin brother, and I kept my memories in him. Growing up, yes, uh, I I, he has our childhood, and I he does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember any. I have a very, very good short-term memory, mm -hmm. and a very inaccessible long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And I get worried when people say, "Oh, you know, if you want to be a novelist, you got to have a good memory." You know, mm, yeah. you know, so. But I wonder if if uh, if a family member, say a wife, in your case, um, but you don't have to answer this as though it comes from your own family experience. But you know, how much of one's own life? does a novelist really want to throw out there for the rest of the world to read? You know, the, uh, the writer Ron Carlson of his first book, I think it was his first novel, uh, said, you throw in everything. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that when, you, when you're starting out as a writer, you know, I mean, I think you need models in every direction. I mean, I think you're stealing from the classics. I think you're trying to engage in uh, dialogues with maybe the contemporary political situation, uh, but yeah, you're stealing. I think you've got to steal from everywhere because a, a novel is a capacious thing and it takes a lot of things to fill it up. Mm -hmm. So memories, uh, for students, uh, I'm very much in favor of taking memories and combining them with make-believe stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know that it's always useful, to st at least in fiction, to try and, to try and really capture exactly what happened because 
uh, just, as, uh, just as Felix was saying about the impossibility of painting what you see. I, uh, you know, what is, what your mem what's real about your memories? What, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of science now that says each time you remember something, you change it a little bit before you sure. put it back in memory. And mm -hmm. so the idea that you're somehow in touch with some objective past, yeah. uh, uh, science is sort of saying that may not be true. Actually, Proust was, was of the same mind. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, thanks you for coming to talk hey, with Jim. us tonight. Hugh Ferrer, thank thanks. This is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and we invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. And uh, the full World Canvas series can be seen on UITV and will be available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. This, by the way, is the last live program of the season, but we invite you to join us next September 21st here in this room for a program on Napoleon's legacy. So please join us for that. Joshua Russell, who's right next to me just now, received his Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the University of Iowa in 2009. Widely recognized as an expert on the piano music of Haiti, he's twice performed for the Haitian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and recently edited and performed a long-lost Haitian piano concerto. He's taught at the Holy Trinity Summer Music Camp for Haitian Youth in Port-au-Prince and is a member of the piano faculty at Illinois State University. So welcome, Joshua. Uh, thank you. Good to be Good back to in Iowa City this evening. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely, and great to have you again on one of these programs. It's wonderful. So uh, Haiti's music school was all but destroyed in the uh, recent earthquake. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the, the Holy Trinity School is really kind of the primary music school in Haiti. It's in, in Port-au-Prince. It was an Episcopal church school that was started in 1927. And then in 1963, the head nun, uh, Sister Anne-Marie Bickerstaff, decided that Haiti needed an orchestra. Uh -huh. And so she began this orchestra program there that has grown to, to have several orchestras, uh, a choir, a choral program, a band program as part of the school. It's really you know, the primary uh, musical training school in the country. There have been, in recent years, a, a couple of other schools that have, have sort of been modeled after that. Uh -huh. They've seen what a, a successful program that it has been in terms of the, the students uh, learning these lessons, going on to be professional musicians. Uh, taking the life lessons that they learn as musicians and, and applying it to other disciplines. And then mm -hmm. these people go on to be successful professionals in various fields and then perpetuate this school. It's really a, yeah. a great way to, to help the, the students in the country. Yeah, absolutely. But then this terrible devastation. That's happens. right. In, in uh, January of 2010, the, of course, the, the earthquake with this, this widespread uh, devastation across the country uh, completely mm -hmm. destroyed the, the school building there along with about 300 instruments that were housed there. Uh, which is really, really, very tragic. But uh, it's been been amazing to see the way that the spirit of the people has come through in this, and, and many of the people associated with the school have worked together, banded together to try and, and help this. Uh, a number of us started a plan of collecting instruments, and uh, as of uh, I think it was last summer, it had collected about 450 of the 300 wow. instruments lost. So in many <laughs> ways, they, they've Great. ended up in in, in better situation mm -hmm. that way, mm -hmm. and uh, have been kind of trying to turn attention to the rebuilding of the school itself. Yeah. It, was, it was interesting, when we first started collecting instruments, we had a lot of questions about why, why in the midst of all of these great humanitarian needs are you collecting musical yeah. instruments? Yeah. And I would always respond with a quote that uh, the, the nun that started the music school said. She always said, we must remember to feed the soul as well as the body. 
And I think it's really, really very important to have that. It, uh, the music is such an, an important part of the, the lives. Uh, it's, it's been a great way you know, through the years for them to, uh, since then, to remember the way things were, to try to regain those things that were lost, and uh, look to the future. You know, the music yeah. is so closely tied to their, their memory as, as well as identity. And, and do you know, in terms of the students who attend the school, um, we all know that the poverty level in Haiti is, is really, uh, you know, crushing. Um, who goes to this school? Are they uh, from all over? The, yeah, really from, from all over. Uh, a wide, wide range of, mm. of backgrounds in, in the students that are there, really a very yeah. wide range. And yeah. uh, like I say, it, it's, it's such a, a bright spot in the country. It's a, it's a way for so many of them to be able to rise uh, through, through the poverty and, and to have yeah. this glimmer of hope. Yeah. So how did you get interested in Haiti and the music of Haiti? Uh, sure. I, I had a, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I had a choir director who was, uh, had spent a lot of time in Haiti. had lived there for about four years in the early 70s and uh, had, had returned every year, almost every year uh, since, to direct a summer music camp. And so I went along with him and was the conductor of the Petit Chanteur Haitian Boys Choir and was also uh, essentially the piano faculty for the, for the summer camp. Just really yeah. fell in love uh, with the the country and the people uh, the, in the midst of this incredible uh, abject poverty, but the spirit, uh, especially of the kids, was just incredibly inspiring. They were so grateful and excited about everything that we were doing for them. It was really, really very inspiring to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know you're going to play some music of a Haitian composer tonight. Tell us about this composer. Sure. Uh, Ludovic Lamotte is one of the uh, the best known of the Haitian sort of classical art music composers. He lived from 1882 to 1953. And uh, there are a number of different facets to his music. Uh, he loved the music of Chopin so much so that it really influenced his style of writing. So in it, you'll oftentimes hear these beautiful melodies that are reminiscent of Chopin, uh, infused with Latin American dance rhythms, is uh, kind of merengue, tango rhythms, things like that, as well as aspects of the, the African roots of Haiti, some of the voodoo drumming and uh, folk songs like that. And, uh, you know, people are never quite sure when I say I'm going somewhere and I'm going to play Haitian piano music. They're not yeah. quite sure what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's incredibly beautiful music. And I, I think that it's really important to present this music because it mm -hmm. shows this gorgeous side of the culture, this mm -hmm. beautiful cultural tradition that too often we don't see uh, when we're talking about Haiti. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's right. Um, other kinds of visual art and so on. You know, since, since the earthquake, I think there's been a little more attention paid to, uh, to Haiti. Obviously, most of the concentrated effort has been on the recovery or the health problems or, you know, some of the really most tragic sides of that. Right. But, but um, I think a few of us are a little more exposed to some of the art from Haiti now than we might have been uh, prior to the earthquake. So... Right. Uh, we take advantage of it tonight when we have a chance to hear some of this music. Yeah, well, thank you. I, you know, the music really, I think, reflects the, the, their culture, what they remember about it, the identity of mm -hmm. them. Uh, you know, in terms of the pieces that I'm going to play here in a little bit, three short pieces. Uh, the first one is uh, this concert waltz, and uh, it's very much like sort of this, this beautiful kind of waltz, uh, European romantic waltz. The second one is the, uh, one of the Lamotte danzas, this habanera. And it, uh, just this, this beautiful piece, and reminds me of one of the sayings that the director of the, the school in Haiti says. He always says, in Haiti, we, we dance when we're happy, hmm. and we dance when we're sad. Hmm. So you can hear this melancholic tone to it, but underneath there's always this, this dance rhythm hmm. going on, this kind of duality. Then the final piece, the dragonfly, it's just, to me, uh, it depicts this dragonfly flying around, but really, to me, depicts the incredible spirit that you see as you get to know the people in the country a little bit. Wonderful. Well, um, I want to let everybody know that in addition to what you're going to play for us now, you're going to come back at the end of the program and 
finish up our show with some more music. So I'm happy about that. And Joshua Russell, we'll let you go to the Great. piano. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you. Uh, performance by Joshua Russell, and he'll be back up a little while from now. Um, I want to also let you know that at joshuarussellpianist.com, you can find uh, some of uh, Joshua's uh, CDs, and in fact, uh, a large part of the proceeds from the CDs uh, go to support the music school in Haiti. So uh, thank you for this, Joshua, and for coming over from Illinois. Uh, and joining us now would be Lois Arthur, just next to me, and Jennifer Shook uh, next to her. Robin Armstrong and Ryan Rasmussen are also going to come up and join us. And here in this final segment of World Canvas, we're going to look at art and memory in the creation and preservation of culture and tradition in the times we live in, times of global dispersion and uh, dislocation. So, as I said, hi, Lois. Lois hi, Arthur Jen. is just next to me, and she's University of Iowa professor of theater, specializing in Caribbean and Atlantic cultures, and we're going to talk a lot about carnival tonight. Uh, 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 passion you have for carnival is infectious, and I, and I want us all to hear all about it. And uh, just next to her is Jennifer Shook, and Jennifer is a doctoral candidate in English and also an Oberman graduate fellow and the founding artistic director of Caffeine Theater in Chicago. Uh, and uh, you have also been an Illinois Humanities Council Rhodes Scholar, and you've traveled around the Midwest giving talks on early American performance and Lincoln in popular culture. We'll have to have you back to focus on those topics another time. Uh, and Robin Armstrong at the far end and Ryan Rasmussen are both University of Iowa students behind a really creative program called Stir Fry, which has um, been active all semester and there was just a big event, I think, last Friday in the Stir Fry um, project. So thank you very much for coming to be with us this afternoon. So, uh, Lois, uh, let me start first with you and you dress so beautifully. I know you're a native of uh, Grenada, is it? Yes. Uh, well, yes. grew up in Philadelphia and actually born in Philadelphia. Yeah, but grew up yeah, in Grenada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and um, so Carnival is something you've worked on and enjoyed for many, many years. And um, give us a, a little peek into what you do and why this is of such importance in your life. Well, it was always one of those focal points um, as a costume designer that I sort of realized that was my influence in terms of color and pattern and shapes and forms. But it took a while to get back to it. I started looking at um, just mass performance and then realized that there was a very unusual mass performance tradition in Carnival um, when I was doing a play some years ago and got back into the idea of thinking about Carnival and what was happening with the art form as it's sort of gone through a commercialization form. Um, but what it was meant to be in the traditional sense and what some of these wonderful carnival designers are able to do and the stories that they can tell. So I spent some time thinking about bringing carnival designers to Iowa, and then I said, well, and for myself, going to different carnivals, and then I just thought Iowa City should have a carnival parade. <laughs> so um, I, it might not seem like a natural progression, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> I, basically, it was why not? Why not um, have it here? Um, use that as a way to tell stories. And so we're focusing on the parade for June 2013. Yeah. And starting this June um, 5th through 8th with a workshop that we want people in the community and the university to take part in. And... Um, build it the way carnival parades are built around the world, which is it takes a year to do it, to think of the ideas, to translate those ideas into three-dimensional forms um, that can be 15 feet, 50 feet tall, depending on <laughs> what part of the country you're in or the world you're in, 
So bring some of that energy and that wonderful storytelling to Iowa, mm-hmm. but tell Iowa stories because Carnival is so much a part of a community event that it should be telling these Iowa stories in these large shapes and forms. So that's the it's, it's basic idea. I think it's going to be so exciting. But, but for anybody out there who's not really very familiar with the Carnival tradition, they may see a 30-second clip on, on the evening news uh, once a year in, I don't know, February. But uh, for people who haven't ever experienced it or don't really know what the ideas are that, that sort of create the Carnival atmosphere and the longstanding tradition, can you fill us in on that part of it? Well, it, um, the, particularly the Carnival that I'm focusing on is Caribbean Carnival that you now find in Grenada, where I grew up in Trinidad, has one of the largest carnivals in the Caribbean, in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil. Um, and then there have been Caribbean people that have spread around the world and taken it to New York City, the Brooklyn Labor Day Parade, to Toronto, the Caravana, to Rotterdam, Um, There's a Dutch-Caribbean parade that happens there, um, also in Amsterdam. Uh, So all over the world is this kind of style of parade. And one of the things about it is that in the Caribbean in Brazil, it is um, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Brazilian. So it is the samba, it is the steel pan um, music. Um, It is this mixture of cultures because then you have the French and the Portuguese that brought carnival traditions from Europe to these countries, Mm -hmm. but then they were taken over by the black populations and became this mixture of masking along with this mixture of this uh, European Mm -hmm. uh, mask tradition, Mm -hmm. um, Mm M-A-S-Q-U-E, as opposed to M-A-S-K. So (laughs) between all of that, you end up with this um, what one of the famous um, carnival designers from Trinidad, Peter Minchel, calls a callaloo, which is a dish in which there's a little bit of everything yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for, for Iowans who are going to work on telling Iowa stories in mm-hmm. the carnival parade next year, um, what are some of the ideas that, that you have in mind? What do you think might happen with this? I mean, do you have some image of what this might look like? I know it'll grow out of a long process, but You've been thinking about this. Well, one of it is to suggest Iowa visual representations, symbolic representations beyond the cliché. So all too often we hear Iowa corn, Iowa cows. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, some of the things I think that Anna and Felix were talking about, some of the other guests have been talking about, that there are so many flavors and differences and very complex Mm -hmm. cultures and people and stories that are here to tell some of those visual representations would be great. Um, I I was, um, I guess it was last year this time, um, no, it was during the fall, I went to Muscatine to the Button Museum. And I just found that a wonderful experience to, first of all, to learn about this, that, that Iowa used to be the center for pearl buttons, yeah. um, that there used to be all of these mollusks and clams in the, in the Mississippi yeah. River. Um, but it was that kind of idea about this little sort of corner of story and the beautiful visual of those, those pearlescent buttons yeah. 
and have that connected to kind of a, the, the water um, in the Mississippi, the, the way that sunlight glints off of the water is the same way perhaps that sunlight glints off of these pearl buttons or there's that light in those pearl buttons. So is there a way to do something around that that represents this part of Iowa culture mm-hmm. at the same time as you can come up with a really wonderful visual representation, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. still sort of suggests Iowa. Yeah. So I'm, I'm anxious to work with artists to kind of come up with ideas about yeah. this, to put artists together with Iowans to sort of say, for the Iowans to say, this is my story, this is the background, whether it's Norwegian or Swedish or German or yeah. Meskwaki or whatever it might be, um, African-American as well as Mexican-American, all of those, and then see what kind of colors and shapes and forms come out of that and then have them be part of the parade. Right. And you're going to be working with area school teachers and uh, classrooms, aren't you? Yes. Yes. One of the things is to bring this into the uh, classrooms to use the Caribbean and the Brazilian carnival as a framework to say this is how it's done, but then to say jump off and let's do this other kind with this Mm -hmm. focus on Iowa. Yeah, wow. Well, fantastic. So it'll be exciting, yes, to see what everyone comes up with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me just jump down to the other end of our uh, lineup here and and talk to you just a little bit, Robin, and also Ryan, about the stir-fry project, because some of what Lois is talking about here, sort of expression of culture, and and even when you live in a very different place, uh, somebody from the Caribbean living in Rotterdam, but but, um, sort of drawing on some of their memories and cultural traditions from home, blending them with whatever is new and what makes sense in the current life... Um, um, is, is any of that what you saw in the stir-fry project? Well, absolutely. I think the whole kind of spirit of the, the project was story, like getting at storytelling and getting at how you can, how those stories translate onto different forms of visual mm-hmm. art and stories can, stories can mold into anything, just yeah. like uh, Lois was saying um, with the Carnival project. Um, and I think it was really interesting to kind of to kind of see that process, especially for Ryan and I, who were all very new at this, and mm-hmm. it was a very experimental program for us. Um, and through working with different um, different forms of art, through doing the printmaking workshops and the stop motion and the mixed media, I think we kind of learned more about storytelling and mm-hmm. how how people can open up and express themselves when they're exposed to different types mm-hmm. of art. For those who haven't read about it or heard about it, let's talk a little bit about what the idea was behind Stir Fry. Um, what communities did you engage with? Who took part? And, uh, and what were some of the activities? Um, so we, we set out to use art as a means of kind of creating bridges between various both cultures, um, generations, and other pockets of the community. Uh, so art, we kind of set out with like this this ambition to use art as a way of just getting people together in the same room and sort of talking and exchanging, exchanging stories. Um, and it also became the mediator or facilitator to get people to kind of feel comfortable with one another. Um, so we had people from the Sudanese community choir paired with uh, members of the senior center uh, working, working on a mixed media workshop, kind of a collaborative um, type of environment. And then we did... Uh, uh, stop motion animation workshop with students from Muscatine, and there were there were kids from uh, seven different countries: Togo, Liberia, um, what am I forgetting? Guatemala, Honduras, um, 
I think that's there were there, yeah Puerto Rico, Mexico, several different places, and so we brought them together to talk about their stories of transition um, and how you know how they got to arrive here in Iowa, and then how to draw on those experiences and teach people about you know where they've come from and where they've arrived, and how we can we can kind of draw on those um, other cultural stories and infuse our own with them. Yeah. So then the artworks that in the end resulted from all this discussion and this combined work, mm -hmm. what were they like? What did they look like? What did you see? Well, the, yeah. well they're very diverse. Yeah. <laughs> um, our mixed media workshop, uh, we created a collage of wooden panels where um, the whole kind of theme of each workshop was describe the landscape of where you grew up. And that didn't necessarily need to mean, you know, just colors or shapes or at first, it could be, you know, draw the, your front yard, or it could be, you know, pick a color, pick a smell that, you know, pick some sort of memory that brings up any sort of emotions and just, just kind of go with it. Um, so the first workshop, we did a collaborative, um, collaborative mixed media piece uh, that, uh, well, it's a little, it's, it's on display at the Senior Center um, right now. And the uh, stop motion animation video uh, turned out to be a kind of a map activity where we started with a map and we kind of had each um, participant put their hand um, and display uh, kind of a trail from their home country to Iowa and then it evolved into um, just kind of scenery that they had put together, whether it was just the, some of the kids just cut out letters of the names of their country and then added images, and some of them created um, really beautiful collages with different colors that reminded them of their um, houses or their the market or their church, and then some added pictures of their family. Um, we had a girl who brought a beautiful picture of her grandmother in Liberia in front of a yellow house, and she created this great scene, and we all kind of added that into the video. Um, yeah, it kind of became a fabric, like a weaving or a quilting together of these small kind of stories, and then as they accumulated together, it became this larger swatch of, of narrative mm -hmm. that kind of tangled together. So you, there, was no, there was no center, really. Everything mm -hmm. was sort of blended together. Um, and, and I guess, I think quilt is probably the best visual example of it. Yeah. Just how, far, how it came together visually. And, and did you feel like personal friendships were being made among these people who just oh, yeah. hadn't known each other at all? I, I think that was one of the most interesting things, is we were asking people to mine their memories and share stories, but while, while that was taking place, new memories were being formed and new relationships were growing forth from that, and so it was sort of um, kind of this really beautiful, unexpected element that, that mm -hmm. took place. And hopefully those relationships will sustain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. And, and let's move a little bit to you, Jennifer, and, and talk about, I know that you teach a class in art and activism. Uh, obviously, you're involved in theater. You're also an, an English major. So um, what is it about memory? I know you teach a class on memoir and, and so on, and you, some of that is involved in your own personal writing. Um, how, how do you use art in discussing activism, for example? Well, it's so exciting to hear all of these panelists talk yeah. because I, I hear so many resonances between us. Um, I uh, have been participating in a class on art engagement and activism in the Intermedia program with Rachel Williams, and we had the great joy of making a large puppet 
which actually has premiered um, on the lawn in front of the old Capitol Museum twice now. <laughs> uh, the first time was uh, for the Derrick Project event, which was in this room a few weeks ago. Uh, in my classes, my interpretation of literature classes were very involved in that event, which fuses uh, a poet's work, a particular poet each year, with um, high school students and this year also graduate students and undergrads uh, working on the, the themes raised by the poetry. And this year, Natasha Trethaway was here uh, discussing her book, Native Guard, which she describes as a literary memoir to her mother and also to the Native Guard, who were one of the first African-American regiments in the Civil War. And so these um, high school students from three or four different local schools created um, visual artistic responses to that. And then my um, University of Iowa interpretation of literature students interviewed several people who were working on it, created digital pieces about that and a digital resource guide. Um, and there were also several graduate students in different art fields who created performance pieces. So it was really great to see, um, as many people have said, not only memory adapting from one um, place to another, kind of transporting us backwards and forwards in time, but forging alliances between people and between forms, ways of, of holding that memory between mm -hmm. different art forms. Mm -hmm. Because it is important for people, isn't it, as they move through their lives, especially big transitions, moving to different countries and so on, maybe leaving most of your family behind and going somewhere else. It, it seems to be important to, to your own personal sort of internal, I, I don't know, integrity or wholeness to, to remember that place you came from, whether you loved, it, loved where you came from and miss it terribly or whether you couldn't wait to get away. It is an inextricable part of your experience, right? So um, with people you know who, who work on uh, these really f fantastical things, um, Carnival, uh, have they talked to you at all about... Um, uh, you know, what connects to what in terms of their memory as they put a piece together or as they're beginning to formulate an idea for a project? Well, so many, I think, of the carnival design designers are clued into the memories of, I mean, it's a thing that's kind of amazing, that they're talking about memory all the way back into history. And so, you know, you go to the Rio Carnival and you're seeing um, the, a reimagining of the indigenous people and what they have given to the culture. And so there's a, a remembrance of that. Also sort of keeping that memory alive, that this is where we come from. And um, at the same time, they're looking at um, an author or... Um, some kind of famous figure in history mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. want to remember. So I think in particular for some people, um, being able to keep that memory of who they are alive is very important. And in Carnival, it, at a point where a lot of African slaves um, around the world were being denied mm -hmm. their memories or their culture, this was a way of keeping it alive. So it became something that was very, very important. Mm -hmm. And for contemporary con carnival designers, I think there is a, a sense of responsibility of helping people remember that, yeah. that this is where the roots of carnival lie in mm -hmm. these kinds of situations. 
And then you get um, situations where you have immigrant populations in, uh, in New York or in Toronto or in London, and they are more um, recent immigrants in the 1950s or 60s or something like that, but they then also are in the same position. of in, They're in a culture, but they want that sense of we are part of the culture now, but we are also part of this other culture. Mm-hmm. So they're always kind of remembering exactly how it, it all gets put together. Yeah. And so the other thing about the carnival is that the way that they sort of talk about the variety of the memory, um, so that in Trinidad you're looking at the memory of, of, of remembrances of Africans, but also um, East Indians and Chinese that came as indentured servants and um, Europeans, uh, and that whole mixture that goes into who they are, what their identity is. So I think memory and identity certainly have a lot to do mm-hmm. with this process, and it gets put on the streets in, in Carnival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're working on a, on a theater piece, when you started up this uh, theater group in, in Chicago, uh, do you do original work? Are you, do you write your own pieces? or Yeah. Original work. Um, Caffeine uh, minds the poetic tradition to explore social questions. So we were very interested in having an activist community sensibility, but we were also very interested in um, regaining that connection between poetry and theater. And um, I think poetry is often something that daunts people when they come to it at first. So we wanted to see how we can help put it up on its feet, make it live, make it um, very engaged with life. Mm-hmm. Um, so we produced many... Um, we, we got a reputation over time for unearthing little-known, quote-unquote, unproducible gems. So we were doing things like T.S. Eliot's The Cocktail Party, um, plays by Hilda Doolittle based on Greek tragedy, things that most theater companies wouldn't touch. Um, But we also did some original work based on adapting poetry. And one of the pieces that we worked on uh, was Memory of a Son, uh, which was an ode to Anna Akhmatova, a Russian poet who is very engaged in memory herself and very famously uh, under censorship in Russia and the Soviet Union, um, was a person that others would turn to to say, can you tell this story? Can art address this? So back to that idea that that people have mentioned earlier today of there are things we want to remember and there are things we need to remember. I think one of the amazing things about art is that it is adaptable in a way that is... If we think of a memorial as a large stone neoclassical obelisk structure, um, that, that doesn't always speak to people's lived experiences. And as history flexes over time and people adapt to changing conditions and and communities mesh together, um, it doesn't just become about remembering something in a particular way, but it's also about um, making sure that that memory speaks to who we are and who we want to be and where we want to go. Um, And the Native American theorist Gerald Visner has this term called survivance, which is a combination of survival and resistance which is what I think about when I think of a lot of current artistic memorials. Um, You said your work on stir-fry was like a quilt, um, and I have been really excited to watch the lead-up to the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. 
is going to be in D.C. this summer for the first time since 1996, I think. Hmm. Um, I also work with the Digital Studio for Public Humanities, and they are working on um, developing a mobile web app that will help people map particular quilt locations. And that quilt, I think, is a great example, like Carnival, of something that's a very old form, um, but that has been used to memorialize particular people and particular stories, but it also builds community while it's doing that. It's very yeah. powerful. Yeah. And art allows for protest in a way that sometimes just, you know, straight um, declarative sentences, uh, you know, you might, you might be shut down if you're trying to protest just using straight language, but if you've, if you've got your protest inside a piece of art, it's very hard for people to nail that down and, and, and get you for it, isn't it? At least in this country, it seems to be. Yeah, absolutely, and there's also a large um, tradition of, of documentary in, um, particularly in poetry and theater, but in other forms as well, certainly, that um, has been able to capture voices that normally wouldn't be heard from the major announcements yeah. or the major, you know, officially sponsored memorial kinds of things. So Muriel Rukeyser being a great example, um, but also uh, Mark Nowak and Natasha Trethaway, who was just here, who are, are very engaged in remembering the lives of the little people, to use the cliche, mm -hmm. and in really making, saying this too is worthy of art, and this is a way to remember the struggles of people before us, to give um, life to the struggles of people ahead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you would like to say, Ryan, or, yeah? Yeah, I, this was just making me think of something that's been really um, kind of present in our project, at least, and that's that art becomes this vehicle of, of bringing people together and kind of working against all of, the, all of these other forces like politics or religion or things that seem to divide people into these, you know, multiple camps. Art, art is a way of remerging those things mm -hmm. and, and valuing the individual as one part of a larger swatch. So yeah. I think that's a really beautiful thing that you were talking about. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to have you all here. Robin Armstrong, Ryan Rasmussen, Jennifer Shook, and Lois Arthur, thank you so much. Uh, please give thank them a hand. Thank you. Thank you. And we have the uh, pleasure of hearing one more piece played here by uh, Joshua Russell. Joshua, is there anything you want to say about this piece before we uh, go to it? Sure, this is the, uh, the Danza Number no. 3 by Lamont, the same composer, and I think is probably the clearest example of this uh, Chopin influence, and, and what you hear in the right hand throughout is this beautiful Chopin nocturne-like melody, and the left hand, these, uh, these dance rhythms, these you know, da-da-da-da-da kind of rhythms, and, and this throughout, so just a, a lovely piece by Lamont. Wonderful. Well, while you get settled, I'm going to say our goodbyes here, and then Certainly. we'll just end the program with your, your performance. Thanks, Joshua. So we'll hear Joshua Russell in just a second here, and we have come to the end of another World Canvas, so thank you so much for being with us. Uh, please know that you can find this program on UITV and also on our iTunes podcast very shortly. Uh, World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and our production partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. Uh, 
we will kick off the next season of World Canvas here in this room on Friday, September 21st at 5 o'clock in a program on Napoleon and his legacy. And I want to say thanks to my colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, and Christopher Clough, and to the technical team at UITV headed up by Mike McBride. So we go now to uh, Joshua Russell for another piece. Thank you all for coming and enjoy the summer. <laughs>